Shall we begin? Let's begin now. Hello, I'm Richard Hattersley, and welcome to No Account for Taste, a podcast for accountants from accountaweb.co.uk. On today's show, we're looking at the biggest stories from the world of accountancy, including a potential change to the tax year. And later in the show, as firms gear up for their post-pandemic back-to-work plans, we'll be finding out exactly why culture is so important and also the ingredients of an outstanding workplace. And joining me to discuss all this and more is, of course, AccountWeb's Editor-in-Chief, John Stockdyke. Thank you for getting me back, Coach. It's, uh, it's lovely to sort of shoot the breeze with you and uh, our accounting web accountants. Well, in Accountants Corner this week, we are delighted to welcome into our virtual pod booth, Sophie Parkhouse, who is a partner at the Southwest Chartered Accountants, Albert Goodman. Hello, Sophie. How are you doing? Hi, everybody. I'm very well, thank you. And all the better for the sunshine, which has finally joined us and come back today. So, uh, yeah, um, wearing my smile with the sun today. (laughs) Thanks very much, Sophie. And Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Albert Goodman? Of course. So I'm a technical and training partner at Albert Goodman. So I'm typically non-client facing. However, I support the firm around technical queries when working with our clients. I also work a lot with our systems and processes in terms of generating efficiencies. I do a lot around CSR and sustainability and also I'm quite involved with um, HR and our people particularly over the pandemic because um, I'm heavily involved in business continuity as well so the way in which we work has very much been a focus of mine over the last year. Kind of sounds like an all-round troubleshooter and uh, you know the yeah. person to, to join you know the emergency uh, you know person to go to when, when the real real snags show up. Absolutely. Yeah, I seem to get involved um, in lots of different things. And I think that's one of the, because I don't have my own client portfolio myself, I think that's often why lots of these things get thrown my way, which makes the role very, um, very interesting and varied. I never know what it's going to bring. Excellent. Well, we're going to find out a little bit more about um, about your what you do at Albert Goodman later on when we uh, look at workplace culture, why it's important Albert Goodman and of course why other firms should be putting it high on their post-pandemic agenda. But first, let's race through the big stories hitting the profession over the past seven days. Um, the third most read story on Accounting Web involved um, the news that the Office of Tax Simplification has been asked to review the implications of moving the end of the tax year from the 5th of April to the 31st of March. The drivers are more related to digital and possibly the need for greater alignment with business practice and the rest of the world. Of course, this kind of split the AccountWeb community. On one side, you had AccountWeb readers like Paul Benny, who said that the the 5th of April tax year end may be strange and outdated. And the 31st of March or calendar year would undoubtedly be more straightforward. But he questioned, is it worth the effort of transition? Although you had other readers like Charlie Can, who said a 5th of April year end causes huge complications for all of the issues. And but a 31st of December year end makes most sense so as to align the tax year with the calendar year and 
international norms, but he added would require lots of complex anti-avoidance legislation to prevent gaining the system during the transition period. Although he added it would, he would argue that a change is essential as our archaic system adds unnecessary problems for the multiple filing requirements under MTD. So a big one, we had uh, at least 50 plus comments on this particular discussion point. John, it's, it's one which um, um, it would be an interesting one, even though it's only about six days or so, which would be shifted, it would cause quite a little bit of change, wouldn't it? I guess there's there's the systems. I mean, you know, as, as I think everybody is um, uh, caught up in in the sort of the the niggles that you might get between the uh, you know a thirty first of March year end and and the the end of the tax year. The sort of that 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 the um, you know there, let's just say there's a there's quite a lot of application of judgment would arise in those situations and, and adjustments or 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 perhaps a little short-term block on on processing that would disrupt the data feed uh, for for many accountants um i know too it's 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 a headache for um sort of startups and businesses you know you've you're kind of wandering around wondering when to do your you know this questions asked when to have your accounting year end and well, <laughs> you know, i know my my default be will be good if it was the end of the year you know that's what i think in terms of and could track it there but um uh, as I say, that any any change to the tax system is a transition, and God knows we've been through enough of them uh, of late, and 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 you know, wrestling with all the other ones um, possibly put a strain on 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 systems people and and process people. I mean, Sophie, you can maybe illuminate that a bit. But um, the general tenor of the uh, the the response on on any answers was, what's taken them so long? And you've got to have that practical impact as well. That that with the IR thirty with the IR thirty with the MTD reporting uh, coming through, sort of rigged around uh, quarterly end of the month reports, um, and and we had that issue of of the potential for for landlords and people with siding income from from trades and and other sources having to report on on. Five, six, seven, eight. I think. I think there was a scenario created where um, one article got it got up to about. I think Rebecca Benny was uh, Rebecca Cave got it up to about twenty quarterly reports required in a year for a builder with a with a rental property in a holiday cottage. Um, that that in in a real time data environment, it, it it's it's almost like a, an imperative for for HMRC to try and get align those better. So. Mark, I think Anita Monteith's thing was March thirty first. Uh, would would at least align it to quarter ends, you know, and maybe maybe not going as far to push for the the calendar year as Charlie Karn argued for. So I mean, is 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 this you know that the, the the little six day uh, um, hiatus is is that something you've you've seen processing difficulties or would a transition cause your, your you and your colleagues a nightmare? I mean, I'm um, tax, I don't get technically involved in in terms of the, the detail. However, what I am heavily involved with are our systems and processes um, and streamlining things and getting things better aligned and also our ability to be able to get data out of the organization and use that. And I think having the, the 5th of April versus the 31st of March, I think that absolutely does create 
some problems and issues for us from a planning perspective and also as you say lots of um, data systems particularly those that are becoming more automated they often struggle with the 5th of April they like an end of month and they can deal with that quite well whereas if you put a a mid-month date it can throw things out in a system so there's often some tweaking around in the background that needs to be done to get reporting systems to work better. I also think having reviewed the article myself and looking at the arguments kind of for and against, I mean, all of the against um, arguments seem to be around, oh, but, um, you know, we've been through enough change. So, you know, that's enough. Um, And they were looking at it more, I think, from... um, from a disruption perspective on the accountants rather than thinking about a client's perspective Um, and I naturally we're in a service organization we're delivering a service to our clients and we want to do what works best for them to make their lives um, simpler and on that basis it would seem um, from my quick kind of overview of it and from the process point again that alignment is a lot better in that it's going to reduce the filings um, and then reduce the the burden on the clients, particularly smaller clients where finance may not be necessarily their forte and they rely on us more heavily. They don't want to be um, interrupted continually with multiple filings in a month by their accountant when they're trying to run their small owner managed business. So I think from a client perspective as well, the um, alignment of the dates would seem to be preferable. That's a really good point in principle, actually, isn't it? I, I do think it's a good good point. I'm not, I'm not sure if I saw anyone make that that point in the debate. So thanks for bringing it up, Sophie. That's okay. I like to bring diversity. <laughs> well, the let's move on to the second most read story of the past seven days. This one involves the old favourite IR35. It was um, Rebecca Cave was looking at two recent upper tribunal cases which highlighted the importance of control in the decision to treat a worker either as caught by or outside of the IS-85 rules. So the first case involved TV presenter Kay Adams. Uh, So the upper tribunal looked at the big picture of her career and concluded that the degree of economic dependence on the BBC contract uh, was for a short period and not sufficient to override the fact that she was generally an independent journalist. Um, and then the second case involved Robert Lee, who works for Northern Light Solutions, um, and he lost his appeal, meaning that his work as a project manager for Nationwide Building Society was treated as being caught by IS-35. So for the, for the Nationwide um, situation, they had a, a various degree of control over him. Um, he was required to work for 7.5 hours a day at their offices. Um, and um, obviously that shows that control is a big issue when it comes to IS-85. So John, two two cases here which shows um, the, the different stories of control. Yep, um, indeed. I mean, that, that control of the sort of Rebe- I, I, Rebecca Cave summary um, did you know reinforce it? It's always the whole of the contract that the courts will look at, and she sort of has distilled the points down to the you know, mutuality of obligation, control, and and personal service as the three factors. And and both these cases, they were um, I think it was uh, turned on um, uh, on the control issue. And and interestingly, uh, I think the the court the 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 
upper trial, you know, the Court of Appeal. I think they um, backed the, they, the the lower courts in both cases. Uh, so Kay Adams, I think, won her her case because the decision there was that the the BBC controlled the editorial content, but that was as far as it goes. So her um, its control over her as as a freelance contractor uh, a contractor uh, wasn't so complete. That, that she was the equivalent to an employee, whereas the contractor, Mr. Lee, um, he fell foul of that. That so so control. It was it was sort of an important point to to solidify control. Um, Rebecca did reinforce the idea that it wasn't just the control that mattered. It was you know with I think you know the, that's where it hinged the the principle that hinged on in these cases, and she also made the fairly useful point that. Um, uh, these decisions, the, they're kind of slightly a thing of the past now. It's the, the employer just has to sort of deem the uh, the status of the employee, and, and there may, may be disputes and discussions that have to go on between them. But it shouldn't shouldn't get to the court courts, or, or um, it's almost like the the contractor would now have to challenge the the engager rather than than the, the tax department, but. These employment status tests do still apply for private, smaller private sectors. So we notice we're de- this this case predated the 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 new off payrolls that came in in April, but the employers we're looking at is the BBC and Nationwide Building Society. So they are now covered by the the off payroll rules and and the and and have to make those determinations internally. But anyone advising smaller employers uh, or, or sorry smaller engagers um, should still I mean uh, there's there is an HMRC employment status test people question it's the basis of its its rulings but um, just looking at the whole of the contract and the principles of mutuality of obligation control personal service are all still relevant for smaller engagers of, of contractors. So it, it keeps running. I mean, I'm sure we'll see a few more cases. Um, although I think possibly the the high point of um, of IR IR35 legal challenges we, it may has passed now. These are sort of these are reminders of an of a of a of sort of previous wars in the battle, rather than I think and may you know I think I think that we you know the last of a generation of, of challenges possibly. But um, who knows? I, I'm, I'm known to, in when it comes to legal issues, I, I really don't like to make predictions at all. Sophie, was is IR35 something which um, is a troubling Albert Goodman, or did, did um, they not deal with with contract oh, like I don't think we've had um, any um, major. Um, concerns or troubles or issues recently that's not to say that there there aren't any coming over the hill as you know it's something that continually rears its head and it's an ongoing piece in terms of um what is the the real situation and what is the reality and i think the hard the hard point when you're an advisor is trying to um to be clear on what is the reality of this situation how would others see it um, and also having a full clear understanding of the fact pattern Um, and when you're um, a third party that can be quite hard to make sure that you've got all of the facts and all of the relevant 
pieces of information to be able to fully make that judgment properly, particularly um, if a client or someone is wanting to present something to you in a certain way, they're going to present it in a way that advocates that. And when you're trying to come in um, to assess, okay, where do we really lie and form your own view, it can be quite hard. So I think with all of these um, legal points, it's around having a real full and clear understanding of the fact pattern to be able to make um, the well the best judgment, because it ultimately is that a judgment. Thank you very much. So if we move on now to our most read story of the past seven days, which was uh, a case where the Supreme Court ruled that Grant Thornton must pay 13.4 million over negligent advice. So it was a long running court battle between the challenger firm and the Manchester Building Society. Um, the long running case uh, hinged on what counted as advice versus simple information. So Grant Thornton audited the books of the mutual building society until 2012 but after advising the use of hedge accounting an area in treatment of interest rate swaps meant the client had to break an agreement early incurring costs of almost 33 million uh, sophie this is um a case which really does um hinge on risk doesn't it and and the perils of that as well absolutely i think um it's um, a, a tricky situation. I think whenever you get into the realms of financial instruments um, and hedging, you're always um, in a complex area of accounting and there are naturally um, complexities um, and a high level of detail that needs to be reviewed. Naturally, nobody sets out to make the wrong judgment or the wrong call. So they would have done their best with the information and the advice at the time to give what they felt obviously was the, the right view on that. But I think um, the same, um, what it highlights to me is the importance of um, continually reviewing work and positions where there are judgments, um, because the article did state that they'd used that same advice and the same principles for a number of years. Um, meaning it had a knock-on impact on all of those years. And I think um, where there's accounting which requires judgment, it's always worth picking that back up again and, and having another look at it just to clarify the terms. And also making sure that if you're picking up something where you aren't quite sure, that you are referring it to the relevant internal experts. Because again, this is um, a particularly complex area. So it may be that, um, that there weren't financial instrument experts within the audit team potentially and therefore they needed to look for um, outside support and assistance in order to be able to um, get those judgments clarified so making sure that any advice that you give remains relevant going forwards rather than just continually relying on it I think is really important um, and also around you know the, the scope of our duty piece now that's something that we're always um, talking about within our firm is around scope creep and mission creep in that you're doing your best to support the client and then you end up going outside of the realms of the work that you've originally agreed to do and you end up doing something else which then maybe doesn't get captured in the letter of engagement and then you're opening yourself up to risk. So one thing that we um, talk a lot about is the importance of having a solid letter of engagement which sets out exactly what it is that we've been asked to do and where the obligations lie um, and making sure um, that we are 
both the client um, and we are very clear in terms of the work that we are doing, the work that we're not doing and where the expectation lies because it's very easily um, misunderstood on either side um, and it's easy again to want to do your best to support the client which is what we're here for and then accidentally do more work than maybe um, we should have done and expose ourselves to risk and it's all well and good when it goes well and there isn't an issue but as soon as there's an issue and then we've gone outside of the realms of our letter of engagement that's when it then comes back to bite us so I think um, being very clear on the scope of our work and our letters of engagement and not just following a file year after year are three points that really jump out to me from that article. I mean, the, 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 the case sort of seemed to turn on the, the decision that, that Grant Thornton, it was sort of an accounting policy um, judgment or, or, or piece of advice. It was determined, it was advice that the... Um, the use of these these interest rate swaps to hedge the um, the sort of slightly dubious mortgage assets uh, was suitable for for hedge accounting. Um, although interestingly, the the claim I think Grant Thornton paid uh, less than half of the actual amount claimed that there was a thirty three million pound default, so they've paid thirteen point four. So not not all of the um, claimed amount because the uh, the court ruled that. You know, the client did quite a few stupid things uh, in its own right, uh, besides um, taking on hedge accounting. Um, but, but uh, I mean, you know, do you, do you, that that seems to be a a, a, a pretty straightforward technical decision. Um, do the nuances or the, the you know, a, a fundamental flaw in the, the auditor's logic is that apparent to you when you look look over their. Um, their treatment they, they, they went for because ultimately it sort of concealed the potential volatility and losses of, of the balance sheet you know, that sent the building society, you know, it started breaking some of its uh, its capitalization requirements and things. But did you, do you see, did you sort of appreciate that nuance, uh, Sophie? Um, so I'm, I don't think that, um, I guess what, in what I'm saying, you know, I'm not saying that anything that they did was wrong or, or siding, you know, in, in anything at all. I'm just simply, I think it said, you know, the judgment they made at, made at the time, I naturally was the right one for them at that, that moment in time. But I think what the article said is they then relied on that decision over a number of years going forwards. Um, and that's where... Um, I guess the case became bigger maybe than it than it yeah. might have been had um, there been more regular review or questioning of maybe earlier advice. Um, it, it may be that that is on file. Naturally, we haven't got all of the, all of the detail, but just from reading um, the article, that was just one thing that came out to me. And it's something that we're all all guilty of in terms of picking up last year's file doing what we did before and running with the judgments without necessarily thinking mm, does that still apply is that still right is there something different here that I need to factor in so it's just remembering mm -hmm. um, in all of the work that we do um, to continually have that professional skepticism and that questioning mind yeah there is a bit of variation in in the, the analysis but but the quote the the dramatic quotes from the story was that you know this this decision will leave auditors in the crosshairs more and um you know especially if we see more corporate failures um possibly we could see more big civil claims so so uh, i mean do, is, is this the kind of decision you know will cause your your audit 
team to <laughs> need to re- sit back and review their um, indemnity, ba- you know, cover and and you know, other you know, does it increase risk? So you know, how how do you respond to a sort of global risk increase like that in in, in an audit practice? I think as soon as um, there has been a case that's gone through court and there's been a successful claim, um, naturally um, that whets some people's appetite in terms of thinking, how might I, um, you know, how might I have been wrong? Is wrong? Is there any error here? Um, if they find themselves in similar situations, so I think whenever there is. Um, I think the nature of audit in itself is always risky and because of what what you're quantifying and you're saying that things are um, materially correct. Um, By saying that, if there's ever a large adjustment or a large impact, you are exposing yourself. So I think that everything that auditors do, um, there's always that level of risk. and so I don't know that it necessarily specifically heightens it. I do think this piece was around, obviously, a lot around the hedge accounting and the financial instruments um, in terms of its nature. But whenever there's a different view in terms of what somebody's um, exposure is, that's naturally going to make us look internally and think, OK, um, we need to be very careful and clear on any advice that we're giving, making sure we're caveating it. And again, ensuring anything that we are putting out there is covered in a letter of engagement and what our liability is around that. Um, and so I think it just reiterates what we already know that we should be doing in terms of being very clear on that. Thank you very much, Sophie. That's the most read stories from the past seven days. Let's move on to our big topic of today, which is around um, culture and um, becoming a, a, f- a firm, which is one which looks after its employees and becomes one which is um, um, a place which is, uh, let's just call it an outstanding workplace. Uh, so, Sophie, this is brought about because Albert Goodman recently ranked high on the best companies work list, particularly with a particular focus on personal growth, well-being, and teamwork. It's very important, especially over this past year, which we've all gone through. Those are really important um, important attributes to focus on for any team, isn't it? Absolutely. I think um, culture um, is, is naturally um, something that's really, really um, important to us. And I think it's for people to be able to perform to their best and for people to be happy um, working with us as a firm. They want to know um, what we're like um, and, and what it's like working for us um, and with us and um, and who we are. And if people know who they are, who we are, um, and they... Um, know what it feels like to be within in the business then they're going to obviously um feel happier feel more comfortable and make it a better place to be so i think the culture is really important in terms of being able to define that um and places knowing who they are as a business and being able to be comfortable with that so in terms of specifics then what should firms focus on when they're thinking about culture what's some of the kind of things which let's say albert goodman has done which um really shows it looks after its, its employees and, and, and in turn then looks after its clients? Mm-hmm. I think um, with um, culture, what I think is 
really important is around being genuine and, and making sure that you are what you say you are. So lots of um, organisations will put messages out and communication um, and create a certain perception of what they're like as an organisation. But then when you're within that organisation, it's very, very different. So I think for us, being very transparent and genuine in who we are um, has been important to us um, and will continue to be important for us in terms of forming um, our culture and honing that in. The um, partners recently had um, our strategy weekend where we reviewed what had gone well and what hadn't gone well over the last um, year. And we all set out um, at the beginning just saying what we were really proud about of the firm. Um, and all of us um, said how proud we were um, of the culture and what we were like as a, as a firm and of our of our people and so I think because it's so important to us it's why um, it gets so much attention and now we've identified that it's important to us it's something we're obviously going to focus on further. Well, uh, Sophie did, I'm interested I mean you know, there's lots of Covid impacts I might want to look at, but my general takeaway from the past year is that it, it's put everybody under stress, um, and and that include you know you probably know more than most you know processes systems um, coping with remote teams, um, you know did, do you do you think it put your culture under stress too, and did you see you know will you be making any adjustments from the experiences you've been through on the culture side, and then we can maybe get into some of the nuts and bolts too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's changed. Um, it's put definitely more of a focus on it. Um, and again, made us all realise, I say, just how important it is to us. And that um, everybody pulled together really, really well. There Naturally, there was um, a lot of stress and a lot of pressures um, that we were working through. But we really did all come together as a team in order to make sure um, that we got through that um, together. There was um, a lot of um, flexibility given to um, to everybody um, around naturally having to work from home because we were told we had to be at home and stay at home, but also in terms of what people's hours looked like. Um, we were having to, um, as everybody else was, homeschool, etc. And so enabling people to do their hours whenever they felt able to do their hours um, naturally went um, a long way in terms of people being able to relieve that level of stress and pressure and not feeling I've got to be sat at my computer nine till five, um, actually um, kind of removing that anything rigid around then saying you know it's more about output if you can get the job done that's what's important it doesn't matter necessarily about what those hours are in terms of of getting it done and so I think what it has done we always had a flexible working policy but it's made us look at that even further um, and um, there will be elements of that that we will look to keep so We've definitely done that. And we've also um, been a lot better with technology. I mean, it threw us all into a position whereby everything had to be as paperless as possible. Um, and so we had to make um, 
some quick changes around that. We had just brought in um, Zoom as a tool. Um, we hadn't really used it um, too much. And then now all of a sudden, everybody's using it and, and everyone's a lot more comfortable with, with the system. Um, and that launch has clearly gone a lot better than we thought because we were all forced to. So I think there are a number of things um, that, we, that we have done. Um, but also just making sure that we had the time to listen to people and be human. Um, so remembering that we're all struggling um, through similar things um, and making sure that um, we didn't remove the, the personal element um, and, made, and made time for people so that um, they could share their experiences, their concerns and, and, and to listen and be there for one another. Yeah, I mean, to pick up on your technology shifts, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I kind of... Um, do a lot of looking through the entries to our awards, which I think I've seen the name Albert Goodman there once or twice. Um, and over the recent years, we've seen sort of remote working increase. We've also seen that flexible um, approach as becoming sort of, you know, more and more, initially larger firms first were bringing that in to sort of, you know, change the culture, keep their teams motivated. And and what what I fully we we just just closed the awards so we haven't actually dug through the the entries yet but I think already I'm anticipating that would have just been accelerated to the absolute four by by the pandemic and um, as you hinted uh, from from the big four down um, firms some firms are making grand announcements that they shall be switching to a sort of a hybrid working model that that we're still trying to define. But um, when you look at keeping those elements and, and, and persisting with the approach, are there, you know, what, what changes do you, you need, now need to work on and implement to do that? You know, what, what holds the key to switching to that kind of mode permanently? Um, I think for, for us, again, I've used the word a lot already, but a lot of it is actually around our culture as well because what we found is yes everybody can work from home all of the time but what you lose from that um is um the the, the whole firm feeling and the feeling of what it's like to be um, closely linked with your colleagues and you miss that learning by osmosis because you happen to be overhearing conversations and seeing how other people work um and then I think it's really hard to maintain who you are as a firm without keeping some level of time in the office and time with people together. Because seeing and being able to observe behaviours um, and um, patterns and ways in which people do things, I think there's um, a lot of importance um, and a lot comes from that. And I think whereas if you're at home on your own, primarily working, yes, you can have team meetings over Zoom um, and, and other technologies, but you're not always fully working together. Um, and I think that a lot of learning gets lost then and you can create silos. So for us, we're not going to be a 100% um, work from home remote firm because um, we feel that who we are as a firm is really important. Maintaining those relationships um, is important and therefore we do want to retain some element of time in the office together as a team to keep teams um, really pulling together, having 
a strong sense of team and also um, going over and above for one another to support each other. Whereas I think you lose some of that um, potentially if you're only remote. How, how will you manage those sort of bond, some of its bonding and but some of its kind of knowledge transfer training and, and orientation? How, how do, you, do you have sort of the mechanisms in place already to ensure that, you know, that's happening to the degree you need it to? Well, we've, like everybody, we've done our best um, over the um, over the recent year. Um, and I'm not sure that anybody has got it 100% correct or, or necessarily has the answer. What I think is important is about um, if you've got the best intention and you know what you want to do and what you want to achieve, um, then trial and error um, and continual movement in the right direction and assessing, okay, has that worked? Has that not worked? What should we tweak? Okay, let's go again. Um, I think is really important because I don't think anybody probably would be able to say we've got it 100% right. I think what we have done um, is naturally use Zoom a heck of a lot. We've had um, zoom chat open nearly all of the time for people to be able to just chat in that throughout the day we've suggested people um log into zoom um to zoom and just keep it open and working so they could have discussions over zoom um, as things arrived to create a virtual working team if people are working on something um together there hasn't been a one-size-fits-all approach um, one thing we have done is um, upped the regularity of our whole firm-wide communications. Um, those are now more frequent and done by video, whereas previously they'd been um, an email. Uh, so that has changed. And um, and we've naturally kept team, team meetings were happening at least weekly um, with every team, getting everybody together um, virtually. And again, talking a lot to people we put out a lot of surveys asking our people um, whether they felt supported whether they felt they needed more um, and, and getting a lot of data and then acting on it so I think a lot of it is around communication and not assuming um, that you know what the answer is and assuming that you've got it right actually checking so taking time to stop and ask is this working? What's not working? What else do you need? And then see how we can then work around that. So I think it's um, continually evolving rather than saying what we've done um, was perfect or what we're going to do in the future is perfect. I think there'll always be movement in it. Well, th thank you very much for talking us through the, the your culture there, Albert Goodman, Sophie. That's all we've got time for today on No Account for Taste. So thank you very much, John. Thank you, Sophie. And thank you, everyone, for listening. For all your news from the world of accountancy, please join us as ever on accountweb.co.uk. But until next time, bye for now.